Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. What I want to do today, if you want to turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1, uh, Eric mentioned that next week is Father's Day, last month was Mother's Day, and we're going to be talking about a woman who probably was wondering if God had forsaken her because her life was very hard. In, this is Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2. And it brings out the fact that, like even occasions like Mother's Day and Father's Day, that these are times when you get the kind of Hallmark card picture of mom and dad and three kids, and all the kids are doing great, and everybody loves everybody else, and it's all wonderful. But we all know it doesn't work out that way for everybody. And actually, for some people, Mother's Day and Father's Day are like the hardest days of the year. There are women who, when they were little girls, played with dolls, imagined Barbie marrying Ken and having babies, and you know, as Christians, that, you know, waiting for Prince Charming to come along. She wore her purity ring her dad gave her when she was 12, and she's waiting for the right guy. But as the years go by and she passes through her 20s into her 30s, Prince Charming never comes. And the dream she had for a married life and kids doesn't happen. Or she does get married. And we have friends in this situation. And they get married. And she marries a nice guy. And they keep trying to have kids. And there are miscarriages. And month after month goes by. And her dream of children. That's someone like Hannah here who, who gets married. And the kids don't come. And it's torture for her. And there are people who marry, and the person they married changes. And Caroline actually has a talk she gives at counseling conferences called The Lonely Wife. There are a lot of women who are married but lonely, and they don't have that close friendship with their husband they just expected. Uh, likewise, there are men thinking, oh, I'm going to keep myself pure, and I'm going to do all the right stuff, and I'm going to wait and find the right person to marry, and... Again, the years go by, and it's not working out that way. And you know, I could go on and on. Some of our challenges have been uh, you have the happy marriage, you have the three kids, and then as they become adults, they turn from the Lord. And what you were hoping for one day of having kind of a lovely family around you, and you're the grandparents, and uh, in our case, we have three adult sons in their 30s, and they're not believers. And... It's a great heartache to us to interact with them. And so we have these dreams and these hopes. And it's not just in family. It could be financially. Things are tough. Health-wise, where, you know, at a young age, you're dealing with health issues or life-threatening health issues, people you love. And th there's a lot of trouble in the world. And sometimes the question is going to be, well, does God really care? How could God care and my life be this hard? And, First Samuel begins with a woman named Hannah, and her heart was heavy. And, and in their culture, by the way, I appreciate this church and Christians today where it's obvious being around here, you value marriage, you value having kids. And in the Old Covenant, it was even a bigger deal because going back to Genesis 3, there was this promise that through the woman would come the Messiah. And in that culture, even more than in our culture today, especially even the Christian culture, a woman's significance could be measured by her ability to have kids. And Hannah is barren. And probably what happened, most people think, is that her husband, Elkanah, 
he needs a male heir. And so in those days, you could have a second wife, which is always a bad idea, but he gets a second wife. She starts popping out kids, and now she's tormenting Hannah as the first wife who can't produce children. Uh, Her life is hard, and she's at a point of distress and despair. Now, the Bible does take a lot of interest, and this is just an ordinary family in Israel, probably about 3,100 years ago. And the Bible does take interest in ordinary families, but also the things written in the Bible are written for all time. And actually, since you're beginning a series in the Old Testament, I want to give you three things to look for when you read Old Testament narrative. The first is you need to figure out what's going on, just to explain the text. The second thing is 1 Corinthians 10 says, these things were written for our instruction. And so the things that happened to them aren't just nice stories from a long time ago, but these are the application to us. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, well-equipped for every good work. And so it's not just tell the story, but it's what does the story mean in my life now? And I've already begun doing that by making connections between Hannah's life and our life. Now, what do you think the third thing is you should be looking for? Thank you. Yeah. Where is Christ? And I love in Luke 24 where Jesus, starting in the beginning of the Old Testament, goes through the whole Old Testament and shows how it all points to him. And so every time we're in the Old Testament, especially, we want to do those three things. And I I want to give you a hint of where that's going to be going in the context of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel was written in the, this, sorry, this story here is in the days of the judges. Were those like the good old days we all want to go back to? Happy days, wonderful days in the life of Israel? No, that's like the the very pit of the entire Bible in terms of how bad things were. You had wicked rulers, wicked people. The best they could do is a guy like Samson. I mean, it's just horrible, horrible times. And Judges actually ends saying in those days there was no king in Israel. Everybody was just doing what was right in their own eyes. These are horrible, horrible times. And I think what the author is doing, the spirit being the ultimate author, is when we read about Hannah and her barrenness, when the the Old Testament had promised that if God's people were faithful, they'd have lots of babies, and she didn't have the baby. In the same way, God had promised blessing upon the nation, but the nation was as barren as Hannah. The nation was oppressed by their enemies. They were not fruitful. They were just in horrible, horrible position, not just spiritually, but materially, militarily, and the promised fruitfulness God had offered to them had not yet come. And so Hannah's situation is the situation of the nation. And actually, as we keep getting into this, what God does for Hannah is what begins to happen for the nation uh, through Hannah and through her baby. So it's not just about, isn't that nice that this family got to have a boy and then got to have more kids? But when Hannah gives birth, she's going to give birth to a person who is going to begin the work of God in bringing deliverance to the nation to bring ultimately David. He's going to anoint Saul. That didn't work out so great. The people's king. Then David, the one who is pointing us ultimately to Christ. And so what happens in this ordinary family is not only their deliverance, but it's the beginning of the deliverance for the nation. And of course, that deliverance points ultimately to the deliverance we have in Christ. So, beginning in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 1. Now there was a certain man from Ramathium Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, 
And his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. And when the day came for Elkanah, that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. And it happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So here we're introduced to this family, just an ordinary family, so it seems. And it's actually, if you've just got done reading the book of Judges, and you have Ruth, which is a you know, positive example. And now here's another, like a bright light in a very dark time. Here's a family. They're worshiping the Lord faithfully. They're going year after year. This is before David and Solomon and Jerusalem and the temple. So they were, there was no temple in those days. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant would have been in Shiloh. And by the way, it, it mentions Hophni and Phinehas, uh, We'll learn a little bit more about them as we go, and if you kept going into 1 Samuel, but these are very, very wicked men. So even as these people are going to worship and they're trying to be faithful, the very priests who are supposed to be leading them are evil, evil, evil men. And yet here they are as this godly family, and even you see some tenderness. Here's a husband who's, uh, he, he loves his wife. He's trying to comfort her. He, he loves her in spite of the fact she hasn't produced kids, better than Henry VIII, Right? He still cares about Hannah, even though she's not done the duty of a wife in, in that culture, that environment. And this is one of many times in the Bible where God will choose to do remarkable things through ordinary people, ordinary families. Now, I have to touch on this very briefly. So what on earth was this man doing with two wives? I already explained that the rationale would have been, I need a male heir to inherit my land and Hannah probably wasn't producing, so I took on this other one. It's the same mentality uh, Sarah had when she told Abraham to be with Hagar. We've got to produce a son. Uh, this is not good. Polygamy in the Bible has always been a bad idea. It's one of those things like divorce that God would tolerate, but it was never according to his design. Jesus makes it very clear in Matthew chapter 19 when he quotes Genesis 2.24. He says, and the two shall become one flesh. And every time in the Old Testament when a man would take an extra wife, it always goes badly. Uh, the Oak Ridge Boys had a song, Trying to love two women is like a ball and chain. Um, and Spurgeon said a wise man advised the sultan, it is first learn to live with two tigresses and then expect to live happily with two wives. When we lived in Saudi Arabia, that was a nation we lived in for six years in the 1980s, they actually allow polygamy there, actually kind of promoted among the wealthy. But I had a friend who lived in an apartment building and he said on, one of his neighbors was a Saudi man and on one side he had one wife and her kids 
And on the other side, there's a department with another wife and her kids. And my friend would kind of describe, there was nothing to be envied for that man <laughs> trying to address that situation. But I'm sure for Hannah, this is a great hardship. So this is, you know, verse 5 makes it very plain, though, in terms of the sovereignty of God. It wasn't just that genetics didn't work in her favor or something. It wasn't a, it's not explained by physical causes. It says, but the Lord had closed her womb. Um, and it just seems like in the Old Testament, there's lots of these cases, especially in Genesis, aren't there, where they, people have to trust God and wait, uh, especially even in the Messianic line as we keep going. Uh, and this is something she yearned for. And again, this is something we can appreciate. Again, I appreciate about you that in our day, when people are trying to avoid having kids and even kill them in the womb, we as believers are, have women like Hannah who say, I want to have kids. I yearn to have kids, but they're also among us, probably in a group this size, some who are yearning and it's not happening. And that can be hard, especially when you have good theology to realize it's not just something biological, it's ultimately somehow God's plan. And as they go to this religious feast, I think what's going on here is they were probably like the Saudi guy with the two women in the two separate apartments. They're probably kind of in their own tents normally. But when the whole family has to travel together to Shiloh, now these two wives are coming into contact with each other. And that's when the, it's like what should have been the happiest time of year to go worship the Lord became the worst time of year because that would be the time that the other woman, her rival, would provoke Hannah bitterly. And she's taunting. I can just see it. Elkanah must love me more than he loves you because I give him sons. And then one of the children asks, well, Mommy, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. Yes, that's right. Doesn't she want children? Yes, she does. Doesn't Daddy want Miss Hannah to have kids? Oh, yes. But Miss Hannah keeps disappointing him. Well, why? Well, God just is not blessing Hannah like he does us. Does God not love Hannah? Well, you, son, tell me what you think. Oh, oh, by the way, Hannah, did I tell you that we're expecting again? Aren't you glad? Now again, Elkanah tries to comfort her. Uh, he gives her extra food in verse 5 at the feast. He says, Hannah, why do you weep and not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? But like a lot of women probably whose husbands don't really get it. His words don't really have a good impact. He does not really understand her grief. And again, we have so many cases in the Bible where God miraculously brings forth children out of formerly closed wombs. Uh, Isaac, you can think in John the Baptist, and of course the ultimate is Jesus. So Hannah then cries out to the Lord. She does the right thing. Verse 9, so then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord, and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving. 
But her voice was not heard, so Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away wine from you. But Hannah replied, No, my lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace. May the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. She said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So Hannah does the right thing, right? When our hearts are burdened, when we are experiencing loss or lack, she cries out to God in her distress. And she honors God. She declares him as the, the Lord of hosts. She makes this curious vow. says, if you give me a son, I will dedicate him to the Lord. And that's going to be part of the story as we keep going. Now, as she's doing this, she is terribly misunderstood by Eli. And there's a lot of irony in this because he thinks she's, she sees, he sees, you just picture you. She's there, you know, her lips are moving. And maybe silent prayer was more unusual. It seems to be kind of unusual in the Bible. So Eli presumes, and by the way, in those days, probably if you did see somebody acting like that, they probably were drunk and not praying. But the irony actually is, is that he's accusing her of being worthless, one of these worthless people, a particular Hebrew word. Well, there were some worthless people around. Who were they? His sons in chapter 2, verse 12. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. Uh, He wasn't very attentive to that, but he was quick to judge somebody else. As she straightens him out as to what she's doing, it seems that his words have prophetic force. This is the turning point. He says, may the Lord grant it. And then, as we continue in verse 19, then they arose early in the morning, they worshiped before the Lord, they returned again to their house in Ramah, and Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And it came about in due time, after Hannah had conceived, that she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, because I have asked him of the Lord. And so the Lord answers the prayer, this is a great, wonderful miracle, like the case of John the Baptist. But it's not just a turning point for this family or for Hannah. It's a turning point in the history of Israel as you keep reading the book. And then at the end of the section, Hannah keeps this vow. Uh, Verse 21, Then the man Elkanah went up with all his household to offer the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go until the child is weaned, and I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Remain until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with a three-year bull and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord, and as long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord, and he worshipped the Lord there. So uh, Hannah waits till Samuel's ready. 
Uh, an interesting aspect of this I'm going to develop more in a moment is it's interesting to see the relationship between Hannah and her husband, isn't it? She is respected by him. She said, not this year. Okay, fine, whatever you think, he says. And then she gives him to the Lord through Eli. And I want to read the next section. I'm not going to expound it, but Hannah then has this famous song of thanksgiving. And as I read it, I want you to tell me if it sounds like other things in the Bible that it may echo. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. He set the world on them. He keeps the feet of his godly ones. But the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered against them. He will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed, or Messiah. Does that sound like anything else you've ever read in the Bible? What does it sound like? Psalms. It sounds like some of the Psalms. Mary. It's Mary, isn't it? And there have been, some, again, not today's sermon, but you could go through, and there are so many parallels, because in Mary's song that they call the Magnificat, she's describing how God is lifting up the lowly and bringing down the proud, which is kind of the introduction of the Gospel of Luke. And so here Hannah is describing something and it's, and then you also see, of course, the messianic aspect of it is he's, she's talking about a king and a messiah, a deliverer. This is more than just her kid or her deliverance. It's a deliverance for the nation. And what the Lord does through Hannah's son is looking ahead to what the Lord is going to do through Mary's son. Another significant thing that I wouldn't expect you to pick up on is Hannah's song actually serves as the introductory song for the first and second Samuel, which are probably originally one book. And at the end of second Samuel, David has his own poem, his own psalm, and has many of the same themes as Hannah. So it's like the bookends on first and second Samuel. At the end of second Samuel, God has done not just for this little family, a great deliverance, but at the end, it's going to be God raising up the least of all the sons of Jesse, David, and bringing down the mighty, and raising up his people, and David's going to sing about that. So if what the Lord does for this little family is what the Lord is going to be doing through Israel, through David, and of course, that looks even further ahead to what the Lord is going to do through Christ, the son of David. So there's a lot more here than might initially meet the eye for some people. And then just one more thing to mention as we finish the explanation, but we're not done. Uh, there's more to come. Then in verse 21, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. Spurgeon said she got 500% interest on her loan. That She gave this son for the service of the Lord, and then God gave her five more. 
So, second thing we do, we've explained the text. Now, how does this relate to us today? And we need to be really careful, okay, because it's appropriate, I believe, to use Old Testament narrative as moral example. We have to interpret it in light of the rest of Scripture. So, if you have a baby, and when the baby is weaned, that does not necessarily mean you drop that child off at the Cobb's house and say, we would like this to be a new young intern in the program here to be trained up. So people do crazy things with scripture. This is, in that respect, a unique event leading to the redemption of God's people, both in the Old Testament and ultimately through Christ. It's unique. But at the same time, these things, there are aspects of this, I do believe, are exemplary and can be very helpful. And one thing I enjoyed reading this passage is just how some of the biblical principles for family, in spite of some of the shortcomings of this family, uh, that a family can be a light in a dark day. And actually, we live in an increasingly dark day in our culture. We're not a covenant nation like Israel was, but we live in a day of increasing darkness. And when you have Christian families who are exemplifying God's design for the family, the light shines all the brighter. Uh, Psalm 127 says, Behold, children are a blessing, a heritage from the Lord. And as we value children, we have our own kids. We adopt other people's kids if they don't want them. We, we, we love kids. That stands out and is a blessing. And we rejoice with one another when God gives children. We have women who yearn for children in a day when women are doing all they can to avoid having kids, even, as I said, killing them. So that's, that's a blessing. Today, as this family went and worshiped the Lord together at the feast, we have families coming together and worshiping God together harmoniously, and that too is a blessing. Uh, we also have here, in spite of some of the problems of this family, Elkanah the husband treats his wife with far more respect than you might have thought was going on 3,100 years ago. That he, he listens to her. He, when she's sad, he tries to comfort her. He loves her in spite of the fact one of the main reasons he married her, which was to produce male heirs, she did not deliver, but he still cares about her, appreciates her. Um, I'm thankful. Matthew Henry from this passage says, it's just like Christ loves the church and withstanding her infirmities and barrenness. Uh, another thing I appreciate, Proverbs 31 says, the heart of her husband trusts in her, of the godly woman. This Elkin is not a hyper-headship, domineering, controlling husband, is he? When he says, hey, let's go worship, and that would imply dropping Samuel off with Eli, I guess. Not this year, honey. Fine, whatever you say. He's, he's respectful of her. She, she's in a position to participate and even make very important decisions. He says, do what seems best to you. Remain here till you've weaned him. Uh, this is a problem right now, not just, you know, there's a lot in the culture about mistreatment of women and Me Too, but there's a lot of mistreatment of women that goes on in evangelical churches, I'm sad to say. And there are men who are experts in Ephesians 5, 22, wives, submit to your husbands, which was written to your wife and not primarily to you. And there's no verse in the Bible that says, husbands, rule your wives and command them forcefully. That's not in Scripture. Uh, it's good to see, even 3,100 years ago, believing families had a relationship between husband and wife of mutual respect as Peter says, to treat your wife greater honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Uh, she seems to even have the, the credit cards of the checkbook. She's the one who gets the three-year-old bull and is a generous offering, an expensive sacrifice. Uh, 
We also see the consequences of violating God's ideal for marriage, obviously, and the tension between the two wives. Another principle I find very applicable, I think about this a lot in counseling, is Eli, the failed counselor, right? It, 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says, love hopes all things. So we, we were to assume the best. Proverbs 18 has a lot of these principles about listening to other people, how uh, Proverbs 18, 13 says that he who gives an answer before he hears it is a folly and a shame to him. And we can often be guilty of coming to quick judgment without having enough data to make that judgment. There, he thinks Hannah's drunk and she's praying. Uh, there can be lots of these things that go on in the church. You see a single person in the church. You say, what's wrong with her that she's not married? Well, maybe she's yearning to be married and the Lord hasn't sent the right guy. Or you see a couple and they're not having kids. Well, what's wrong with them? Are they just trying to be double income, no kids, and live in a big house and have fancy cars? Well, maybe every month there are tears in that home because no baby has come. Or you see a guy who's still single and think, well, there's all these single girls out there. What's wrong with him? Well, maybe he's struggling with same-sex attraction. And maybe in his own heart, he's, he's resisting that. He's not acting on it. But right now, singleness is the best thing for him. And we need to be careful not to make judgments. Or a preacher sees someone with their eyes closed during the sermon. They're praying, like Hannah, maybe. Or maybe... They were up all night the night before with a screaming toddler and it's not their fault they're tired and maybe if the preacher was more interesting, they'd be awake. <laughs> Another lesson exemplified here when James says that we should consider it all joy when God gives us various trials is that God uses our trials to draw us near to him. Hannah was driven to pray and to pour out her heart before God with an earnestness that only comes in the midst of suffering. And Psalm 119, the psalmist says in verse 67, 71, it's, it's good that I was afflicted, that I might know your ways. Hardship teaches us to depend upon God. And poor Hannah's case, her husband doesn't really help her. Both her husband and the clergy let her down, right? The husband doesn't get it, really, and did some things that hurt her a lot. The clergyman doesn't get it, accuses her of being drunk. But the Lord will never fail her. The Lord will never forsake her. And as she turns to the Lord, the Lord helps her. And for us as well, the psalmist says, I pour out my complaint before the Lord. I declare my trouble before him. When we are suffering, even though your spouse, your parents, your friends, even your pastors may not be there for you the way you want, the Lord will never leave you nor forsake you. She comes boldly before the throne of grace. She pleads with God. Now, I can't promise you that if you're single and you want a husband and you're married and you want kids or you know, you're unemployed and you want the great job, I can't promise you that if you just do what she did, you're going to get the exact results she did. You think of Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 where he had this thorn in the flesh and he asked three times that God would take it away. And the Lord said, no, my strength is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. And you must learn strength through your weakness. So some of us will have dreams and it's, you can't just say, well, if you just pray the right prayer, then you're going to get the kid or get the husband or your husband will be converted or whatever it is you're yearning for. But you can know that God will be with you, help you in the midst of your trial and he will give you strength and peace. You can cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. And I think a big thing just to be remembering here as well is that the ultimate hope in the midst of these troubles has to be not in having a baby 
not in having a spouse, not in having a job or a certain level of prosperity. Our ultimate hope has to be in God. Jeremiah 17, probably a passage familiar to many of you, where, where so, it says, Cursed is the one who trusts in mankind and makes the flesh his strength. He will be like a bush in the desert. He will not see when prosperity comes. It says, Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who trusteth the Lord. He will be like a tree planted by rivers of water, that, whose leaves will remain green, will bear fruit in its season. Is People like Elkanah and Eli and other people in our lives will sometimes let us down. And we sometimes need to learn to trust in God, and we do that in the midst of our trials. And when you get to Hannah's song, she does get it there. Her heart exalts in the Lord. Uh, she rejoices in His salvation. And it, it's a very God-focused prayer she gives there. Her ultimate hope was not in a child. And then I've already mentioned that God uses the ordinary. He uses ordinary people in extraordinary ways. He uses ordinary means. When, Hannah, when God was going to give Hannah a child, it was not a, an immaculate conception. It, was, it says Elkanah and Hannah were together as a husband and wife. And so when you pray, it's not just a matter of saying, well, I'm just going to wait for God. I'm unemployed, so I'll just pray that somebody will come find me and give me a job. Well, no, you go like Ruth and you start to go gleaning and searching and praying that God will show favor to you. If you're single and you yearn for a spouse, uh, use the means legitimately that God gives you to get to know people. Another question I'll just touch on briefly is that do we, they dedicated the children. Is, I don't know what your practice is. It's a great thing to give thanks to God publicly for the birth of children, to pray for the parents, to give instruction about those things. But it's not an ordinance like baptism and the Lord's Supper in the New Covenant. It was part of the Old Covenant. And then this particular dedication, of course, is a very unique situation. But it is a reminder as well, all of our children belong to God. None of them belong to us. And there is a sense in which as we know we're expecting, we have a child, as forever this child was given up to the Lord, uh, Samuel, Samuel was given up to the Lord. That's really true with us as well. So the next question would be, well, then what is God doing here? And this is the third major thing we want to do when we look at narrative. And it's more than just a moral example. And I, again, I know that your preaching and your teaching has been very Christ-centered. It's actually interesting kind of where you get people pendulum back and forth. Some people, it's all application and no Christ. And some people, it may be all Christ and no application. Uh, most of us grew up probably the all application, not much of Christ. But I think for this story, it's much more than just a moral example. The, the, this chapter is more about God than about Hannah, and it's even more about Israel than just this little family. That, as I said in the beginning, that the barrenness of Hannah, as it begins this very important large section of Scripture, is exactly a mirror of the condition of Israel in the days of the judges. And just as there had been this promise for individuals to be fruitful, the nation had been promised great fruitfulness. The Lord had said, you shall be blessed of all, all the peoples. There'll be no male or female barren among you or among your cattle. But that wasn't the way things were in those days. You, they were enslaved, they were oppressed. There was intertribal warfare. They had wicked priests like the sons of Eli. 
And what's happening here, as you keep reading First and Second Samuel, is that God is beginning a process to bring deliverance to the nation. And Samuel is being raised up by God as this key figure, the last of the judges to bring in as the, the kingmaker, the king, uh, again, David, who will make the nation great and the promises of God will be fulfilled through David. And so the birth of Samuel, as you're reading the book, is bringing hope to God's people. It's like in Exodus when the people were oppressed and they cried out to God and God heard and delivered them through Moses. Well, here is, the, is this woman is oppressed and is part of the little remnant of faithful people. As she cries out, ultimately God hears the cries of the nation and a new Moses is coming to bring them deliverance. And then ultimately, this all points to what God is going to do through Christ. And Every miraculous birth in the Bible should make us think of the miraculous birth through Mary. And God uses a woman who is faithful, but from an ordinary family, to bear a deliverer. And as Israel was under oppression and enslaved, the whole world, the scripture says, the world lies under the control of the evil one. It says in 1 John, and how thankful we are that God has sent a deliverer. And you look at verse 10, especially the promise that he will thunder from the heavens, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth, he will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed one, of his Messiah. And, and even for Hannah, the true deliverance of Hannah wasn't just that she got to have a kid or six kids altogether. Her ultimate deliverance is the one she sings about in that beautiful psalm, of a king who would come and bring ultimate deliverer, not just David, because part of the message of First and Second Samuel is the best we could ever do was David, but David still fails. And we're looking ahead to a son of David, an anointed one of God, who will bring the ultimate deliverance through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so when you get to passages like Isaiah where it says, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is what God is beginning to do in 1 Samuel. So, we began with the question, does God care? Does God care about a barren woman with a rival wife? Does God care about lonely men and women today? Sick, sad, brokenhearted over their children. Does God care about us in the midst of our troubles? And the answer is yes, definitely. God cares about Hannah, hears her cry. He cares about Israel and sends them a baby initially Samuel, who will begin their deliverance. But most of all, he cares about the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. That God sees the brokenness and the misery of the world in which we live. He sees people chasing after relief in all the wrong places. And he has sent the one who can actually bring that deliverance. Christ who came into the world, who lived a perfect life. He who then willingly went to the cross and bore the sins of all who will believe in him. 
And whoever will believe in him will experience that deliverance, not just in this life, but it begins here, but everlasting life, solely by the grace of God. He cares today about the burdens you bear, even as a believer. Psalm 113 says, praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is enthroned on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and on the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, the princes of his peoples. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your care for your people. We thank you for the beauty of your word that describes your great works of the past. It teaches us things that teach us how to live now in faithfulness. And it points to Christ, our deliverer. We thank you that though we were in desperate need of deliverance and could not do anything ourselves to make our own deliverance, that you have miraculously, through your Son, given us the deliverance we need. Lord, I pray today, if there's some who are hurting and struggling, that they would know your care for them and would rest in you. They would cry out to you and find help and relief. And especially if there are those who experience the misery of living as a sinner in a sinful world, that you would show them there is a way of deliverance through Christ. We pray this in his name. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.